Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm Ross Kemp. Over the last 18 years, I've made some 90-odd documentaries predominantly in hostile environments, from Afghanistan to Syria, from El Salvador to the Congo. And it's fair to say that during that time, I found myself in a few interesting situations. I've been shot at, tear gassed, had knives pulled on me and spears thrown at me. But in all those years, what's impressed me the most is the resilience of the human spirit. Our ability, no matter where we're from, to overcome and make it through to the other side. So, in my new series, The Kempcast, I'll be talking to some incredible individuals who all have engaging stories to tell and have themselves overcome some extremely tough moments in their lives. Right now, we're living in unprecedented times, and we should be doing all we can together to get through this as safely as possible. I hope that if you subscribe to the Kempcast and hear how my guests overcame their toughest moments, it may help you overcome yours, whether you're going through one right now or you're faced with one in the future. Joining me today is Professor Dame Sue Black. As one of the world's leading experts in forensic anthropology, not only has she spent years working to help identify victims of various conflicts and natural disasters, she's also invented a system that helps identify and convict sex offenders. Thank you for agreeing to join us on the podcast. I am. Um, it's rare uh, that we have not only a professor, but a dame at the same time and an OBE. You turned that down three times. Sue Black. Do I call you all three of those things, Professor Dame Sue Black, or is that four things? No, just call me Sue. Please <laughs> just call me Sue. Dame, Dame is what you get in a pantomime. Um, Professor, you know, I got that free, so just Sue's fine. Uh, and did you say something once that you have more letters behind your name now than you're actually involved in your name? Is that right? Yeah, uh, you know, if you're, if you're an old academic and you live long enough, then you get strings of letters after your name. And I've got more letters after my name than I have in my name now, which is silly. But, you know, some of those come free simply because you're old. And also because you've had quite a life so far and it's far from over. Um, but it didn't start out like that. How did you first become interested in the human body? When you live long enough, you get that great opportunity to sort of turn around and look backwards and to find the crossroads where you made a decision. And very, very on and on in my life. I mean, my maiden name was Gunn and my father was a tremendous shot. 
And so I would go out with my father just to have an excuse to be with him because I adored my father. And he would shoot rabbits and pigeons and deer. It was always for the pot. And so when we would bring them home, my mother was a bit squeamish. So I would get the job of plucking them or gutting them or grilling them, you know, and from the age of about seven or eight. So being around dead animals didn't faze me at all. And when I was 12, my father said to me, what job are you going to do? And I thought he meant when I grew up, he meant at 12. Classic Scottish Presbyterianism, you know, get a job and get a work ethic quick. And so it was very obvious that I would work in a butcher shop because I was very comfortable with blood and bone and muscle and guts. And when I got to university, of course, by the time I got into my third year, there was an option to go into the anatomy department. And the anatomy department was another kind of butcher shop in that regard. The animal was different. And just the ability to look and have permission to look underneath somebody's skin and to learn what you're made of, that was the point at which my life changed forever. Can you remember, you talk, and you have talked about, you could walk in there blindfold now and you'd be back there. Can you describe it to me? So every anatomy department has its own smell. And it has that because it uses a slightly different formula for embalming the bodies. So if you blindfolded me and I, I could tell you whether I was in Aberdeen or Dundee or in London or wherever it would be, because they all smell different. But the anatomy department at Aberdeen University was one of those old Victorian buildings. It was almost like a, a conservatory in some ways that was placed on the back of a grand house because it had the glass ceiling and opaque glass windows all the way around with the most beautiful parquet flooring, which is totally impractical as a dissection surface because you really can't ever clean the floor properly. And there were probably about 50 or so glass and metal tables distributed around the room. And underneath each of those, under a, a dome of a, of a white cover, was a body for dissection purposes. And it was a scary place to walk into when you were 18, but it's a place now that I feel I can walk into and almost feel at home. It was scary from the point of view of the cadavers, scary from the point of view of the pressure, scary from the point of view that you were, you were in the presence of people who had volunteered their bodies. So you may learn and, and pass on that knowledge. I think probably a combination of all of them, because it is very daunting to walk into a room with 50 dead bodies laying out on tables when you're a teenager. So, so that was of itself quite daunting. You were in an alien environment. And then knowing that you had to be able to take a scalpel and to slice through human skin, there's a part of you thinks, I can't do this, I'm going to make a mess of it. You know, how on earth am I going to be able to cope? And then there's also the fact that the person in front of you gave their permission for you to do that. So when they were alive, they signed a piece of paper that said, when I die, this is what I want you to do. I want you to be able to learn. And that's a huge pressure when what you have are the remains, the corporeal remains of somebody who made that decision just so that you could benefit. Huge pressure for, for a teenager. And, and can you take yourself back to that first incision? Oh, absolutely. Trying to get your scalpel blade onto your scalpel handle, first of all, because nobody tells you how to do that. So everybody who starts an anatomy ends up with their fingers covered in plasters because those scalpels are so sharp. And I think it's very logical that most of us start our dissection in the chest because right in the midline, you have a breastbone. 
And that's where we do our first incision because actually you can't cut too deeply because you can't go beyond the bone. So I think in many ways starting there is, is the rookie's way of making sure that we start to learn our craft before we can't make too many mistakes from day one. Your new book, Written in Bone, uh, is released this week. You've divided it into three sections. Can you tell me why? Well, for the, the reason behind it was, I think most of us don't know an awful lot about our own bodies. And we're not very comfortable at the terminology that's used for us in our GP surgery and our hospital. So it was very much uh, a conscious decision to use anatomy and to use anatomy as the, the core of this. And one of my areas of expertise, and this is, this is not for dinner guests, but one of my areas of expertise is criminal dismemberment. And the, what, what they suggested I did was I take each section of the body, and if that was the only part of the body that was present, what would I be able to tell from that section and that section alone? And then could I use some cases to describe how that particular area of the body had been important in that investigation? So the whole layout of the book in terms of its sections and in terms of its chapter is about, in many ways, anatomical sections and sections of the body that we might find if somebody chose to dismember human remains. Chop them up, basically. Yeah, pretty much. And most of us, as a, as a dismemberer, don't really have an awful lot of experience. So most people who dismember are actually pretty bad at it because they've not planned it and they're not trained for it. But the people who are much better at it are those who have skills like gamekeepers or surgeons or anatomists or forensic anthropologists. Or butchers. Or butchers. And we can pick up from remains whether somebody has had some previous experience because most people make the same mistakes. And does it look at organs as well or is it just purely bones? It's primarily looking at the bones and the musculoskeletal structure because often if a body is found intact and relatively recent, then there's usually other indicators that we'll use. We'll use DNA analysis, we'll use fingerprint analysis, you name it. But as the body starts to decompose, or if the body is fragmented, whether it's burnt or it's exploded, then we have less information that the soft tissue can often tell us, and the bones then really come into their own. And certainly with the passage of time as the body decomposes. Yeah, as you point out, the soft tissue goes, and bones will stay around for a heck of a lot longer, right? Thousands, thousands of years, and they hold the secrets. You know, we, we think that our memories are inside our head, but actually our body writes down memories in its own structure of the things that, that matter to us. So, you know, if we have incidents that perhaps of ill health, or we've fractured a bone, or we've had disease, or we walk in a particular way, or we're right and left-handed, all those things get written down as, as memories in some way in our bone. And our job is just to try and find those memories. And, and therein lies all the training and all the knowledge that you possess. And you've, you've certainly traveled the world. Um, well, just on the basis of working things out, you worked on some of the, the skeletons that were found in the Maori Rose, is that correct? I did a little bit. The, the, the main person involved in that was a lady called Anne Sterland. And um, I was very friendly with Anne. And at a time when she was looking at the Mary Rose skeletons, I had the honour of being able to sort of sit alongside her, almost as her assistant in some ways, and help her out in, in terms of different forms of identification. But she was, she was the main anthropologist in the Mary Rose. I just happened to be very lucky to be alongside.
You worked out something about yeah, these these were relatively young males, but they weren't. They had issues, didn't they? Even arthritis, even in young age. There was a little bit of arthritis, but the thing that was most important about them is that at, at the top of your shoulder, um, there is a little thing called the acromion process. Acropolis means at, at the top. So the acromion is right at the top of your shoulder. And it's a little sort of nub of bone that is separate until you're into your teenage years. And then it fuses with the rest of the bone. But there are some big muscles attached to it. And if there's constant strain on those muscles when you're young, that little bit of bone never fuses to the main body. And so it stays as a separate little nodule of bone. It's called an osochromiale. And what we found was a huge number of the individuals in the Mary Rose had this osochromiale. And what we could attribute that to was the enormous amount of strain that is placed on the muscles if you're an archer, for example. And of course, we know that the ship was, was filled with archers. Amazing that you can tell that from that time ago and place it at the foot of, 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 of archery. You, can you explain to me the difference between being an anatomist and a forensic anthropologist? Because they're different things, aren't they? They are different things. So an anatomist is somebody who is trained to learn all the detail of the human body. So whether it's bones or muscles or nerves or arteries, they can tell you where they all run. And most of the time, anatomists are teachers. And they usually teach the medical students, the dental students and the science students who will go on then to train other doctors or dentists or scientists. The anthropologist is the study of man. And of course, that's something bigger than just the anatomy. That's something about culture. It's about movement. It's about all sorts of aspects of being human. And then when you place the word forensic in it, that comes from the Latin word meaning forensis pertaining to the forum, which of course were the courts of Rome. So anything that is forensic isn't forensic because it's about investigation or because it's about the police. It's because you're there to help the court. That's the forensic bit. And the most important people in the courtroom are the jury because they are the triers of fact. So any expert who is a forensic expert, their job is to help the jury to understand the evidence that's being placed before them, either by the Crown or by the defence. Do you have a favourite bone? <laughs> um, I really quite like the collarbone, the clavicle, and I like it because it's the shape it should be from almost the moment it forms. So it never really changes its shape. But because of the way it grows, it's really useful for identifying age in babies and fetuses because it grows about a millimetre a month. I love the regularity of that. But the end bit of it, which is right here in the midline, that carries on growing until you're in your mid-twenties. So this is a bone that can help us uh, provide information from the fetal age right the way through to your mid-twenties. I think that that's pretty good going. So is it one of the first bones that develops in a fetus? It is, well done. So it's one of the first to form and it's one of the last to finish growing. But we don't really need it, is that right? Not really, no. So you can take it out. So um, it's one that's frequently broken. Um, and so if you fall on your outstretched hand, usually at the junction between the middle two thirds and the outer third, there's a big bend. You can feel where the bone dips in. And that's usually where it breaks. And if it breaks right underneath there, deep underneath there is a very, very big artery and a very, very big vein. And if that bone happens to perforate those, then you're, you're in desperate trouble. 
So jockeys used to actually remove the collarbone because they were frequently falling off horses and damaging themselves. And providing you stitch the muscles together, you can actually remove the clavicles without any, you know, any detrimental effect. But what people who don't have clavicles can do is, of course, they can bring their shoulders right into the midline at the front because they don't have these struts sitting out to either side. I'm keeping my clavicles where they are for the time being. But one of the things I noticed, um, Sue, that said, you know, the National Academy of Science has found that most of forensic sciences are not fit for purpose. A huge statement to make. And the work that I did, IEU, with the Royal Society suggests there's evidence to support that view. And is that because of DNA? Because so much now is placed on DNA. So, so there's, a, there's a number of strands to it, as, as you would expect. Um, there are some of the forensic sciences around that have been around for more than 100 years. And you have to question whether there is science behind them. So fingerprint examination, for example, there is no science to it. What there is is statistics, but pretty much it's one of those, you know, you know those um, quizzes you had as a child, spot the difference. So it's a bit like, where, where are the similarities? Where are the differences? And then there was an acceptance for a time that if you had 17 points of similarity, that was a match. And then a probability was assigned to it. So there's a limited amount of science behind that. There's a limited amount of science behind gait analysis, for example. A huge amount about clinically understanding gait, but in terms of forensic science, less. Talk, we're talking about the width in which someone walks, the, the space. The way in which somebody walks, yes. But then DNA, when DNA hit, hit our world, and it didn't do that until the 1980s, um, when Alec Jeffries had one of those incredible moments of thinking, why can't my research work? And the reason it wasn't working is because we've missed the fact that DNA was different in everybody. That was based in real science. So there was a huge amount of medical, biological, genetic science had gone on before. So being able to translate DNA into the forensic world really revolutionized science in the forensic world. But we've got to a point now where in many ways our science, we've become too clever. So because we can pick up such small quantities of DNA now, we have difficulty deconvoluting a sequence that says how many people have sat around this table? I'm probably going to pick up everybody's DNA. How do I separate them out? Because I can now get DNA from a single cell. So keeping science and reality apace is often the problem. But some of our older sciences, for example, we don't know how DNA is transferred or how long it persists. That needs a lot of scientific research. And that's what I think the Academy meant by there's a, there's a lot of work still to be done. But what you do is backed up by science, 100%, right? Yes, it is. So it comes from both the anatomy side and from the anthropology side. But if you look at the work that I'm doing currently in terms of identification from images, that science also comes from the science of biometrics. So being able to, one of the things that forensic science does terribly well is it's a bit like a magpie. It looks at who else is doing really good science and it steals little bits of it so that it can apply it to its own situation. And, and finding that, that good core science is what's really important if the courtroom is to have faith in the professional evidence that you're giving. What we're talking about is the fact that you created, you'll say with your team, but you created uh, a unique hand recognition system that led 
to 28 life sentences against child abusers. 83% of those cases, um, the actual accused admitted their guilt. How did that happen? How did, how did that manifest itself? It's about being in the wrong place at the wrong time, is, which is often the way. So um, when I'd been in Kosovo, I was working with the head of the photographic unit for the Met. And so when a few years later he had a case, he phoned me up and he said, look, I've got this case. I don't know what to do with it. Could you have a look at it? And the case related to a young girl who alleged that her father came into her room at night and sexually abused her. And she told her mother and her mother didn't believe her. So what she did, brave, brave young girl, she left her Skype camera on at night and it clicks into infrared mode. So at night, what you can see is a sort of black and white almost image, but that infrared light reacts with the blood, the deoxygenated blood in your veins and your vein patterns stand out like tram lines. So at half past four in the morning, we could see a hand and a forearm coming into view of the camera and doing exactly what she said was happening to her. So what I knew as an anatomist was that the vein pattern in the human is incredibly variable when you go from the elbow down to the fingertips. It becomes more conform, there's more of a conformity as you come closer to the heart, but the further away you are from the heart, more variable it is. If you doubt me, look at the back of the vein, the vein pattern on the back of your right hand, it'll be different. I looked at the notes and they're completely different. They're completely different. So in this case, you suddenly saw the fact through the infrared camera that the, this man, this, this father abusing his daughter. So I had the perpetrator, so I had the perpetrator committing the abuse and I could see the vein pattern, superficial vein pattern of the hands and forearm of the perpetrator. What the police then did was they took a photograph of the suspect and the suspect of course was the father. So the question of me was, is the individual in the photograph the same as the suspect? Now, if they were different, if those patterns were different, then I could say with 100% certainty, it's not him. If they were the same, which they were, because we had not at that point done the research, all I could say is it's the same vein pattern. I don't know what the probability is. I don't know what the commonality of that pattern is, but I can say that I can't exclude him. And that was what we went to court with. Nothing more than that, because I didn't have the science to back up what the likelihood was. And I gave evidence, the judge decided he would admit my evidence because I was an anatomist and because I understood human variation. And jury went away and the jury came back and they found dad not guilty. And at that point, I must admit, I was surprised because who else was in the young girl's bedroom at half past four in the morning doing what she said was happening to her that had a vein pattern that matched his. And I asked our QC, was it something I'd done? Because the first thing you do is you blame yourself. And she said, no, there was, there was nothing wrong with your evidence. I just don't think they believed the girl. She didn't cry enough. And for me, that was a real moment that said, our, you know, our justice should not be predicated on whether the jury believes a child or not, because either, you know, this must have been a, a young girl that was so self-contained to be able to accuse her father when her mother didn't believe her and take the case to the police. For then not to believe, be believed by the court, I find unacceptable. And that was what set off our research projects from that point forward. We couldn't help her because he was found not guilty, but what she has been able to do through all of the research that we've done ever since 
that is her legacy. And maybe one day out there, if she's still alive, God willing, she is, then at least she will get some consolation, hopefully, that regardless of what she went through, she has been able to make a significant difference from that point forward. When you say significant, you know, I mentioned the amount of people that that system has been able to, to convict. But you also say that as a scientist, you have to not take sides, not be preferential. But because I know of your history, when you were a child, you, you, was, you, you, had, you were sexually abused at a certain point. And you say it sort of it, it changed you for the rest of your life, as, 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 as it would. Um, is that one of the reasons why you've concentrated some of your work, a lot of your work, at looking at tracking down and getting convictions for people who abuse children? No, and, and it's a really interesting question. It's one that was posed to me um, relatively recently, and I took a long time to think about it. Um, what I meant by that event changing my life, it made me a different person. It didn't make me somebody who was an evangelist or somebody who wanted to go out and, and you know, take everybody to justice and what they've done. That just wasn't my way at all. But what did happen was, again, like the young girl, my mother didn't believe me. And my mother named somebody else. She said, well, if it did happen, it must have been him. And it wasn't. And I found the injustice of somebody being blamed incorrectly actually much more influential on what I went on to do. So I'm a great believer that our job is to be impartial. The jury will make up their decision. Whether I think they're right or wrong is irrelevant, but we have to be able to give them the science that makes them understand the problem the best to their ability, because we want the right people on the right side of the bars. We don't want innocent people convicted wrongly and we don't want it vice versa. So, so justice for me is incredibly important. It isn't a crusade, it's never been a crusade. I didn't come to doing this work until I was in my 40s. And trust me, I was you know, well able to cope with the kind of things that we see on that basis, irrespective of my background. How do you deal with it? All the things that you've seen. The fact that you, know, you also helped um, bring down Scotland's biggest paedophile ring um, and also Richard Huckle, who was notoriously the most prolific paedophile in, in British history, as far as we know presently. Um, is that something that you think about or is that just part of the job? In all honesty, it's part of the job. And I do think that because I've been doing this so long and because I came through the route that I did, in many ways, there's been a, a chance to develop a coping mechanism and to be able to protect myself. So I like to think that inside my head, I have a clinical working box. And what I do when I go to work is I open the door and I go in and I do what I have to do, whatever it may be, whatever aspect of the job. But when I'm finished, I come out and I close the door. My job is not to find somebody guilty. My job is not to track somebody down. I don't ever meet the paedophiles whose cases I will work on. I have a very, very myopic view of what it is that's required of me. And that's what I don't move from. And I think that's my protection in many ways. There's one case that, that I found slightly, well, disturbing, but also fascinating is Harris Lines. Can you explain to me Harris Lines? So Harris Lines are, they're, they're lines on a growing bone. So when a bone is growing, it grows at either end. That's why we get taller. 
And so bone gets laid down at the top and the bottom of bones. And if you have a moment where you're ill or there's something that stresses the body, what the body decides is, I need all my energy diverted elsewhere. Maybe because the brain is so incredibly hungry, it takes an enormous amount of our energy and our sort of metabolism. And what you can often find in young children is that if there has been a period of stress, and whether that stress is medical or otherwise, you, the long bones stop growing and you get these little white lines that you can see on an x-ray that get laid down. And all it tells you is that bones stopped growing for a little while. It doesn't tell you why, but it just tells you that it did. And it, it allows us to be able to look at bones and if we're looking in an archaeological context, for example, it might tell us about stresses in the environment. Maybe it was about famine, maybe it was about war, but it also allows you to, to state that there's something there that has happened, but you don't know what it is. In, in the case that I'm looking at, it, 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 a young boy eventually took his, his own life. And then when you looked at his body, you could see that it collated the time that he had spent with his grandfather, who was suspected of abusing him, correct? And again, that wasn't necessarily all my involvement. I happened to be in the mortuary that day on an entirely different case. I had a bag of bones that all turned out to be animals, so it was a really boring case. But as I was leaving the mortuary, the pathologist put up the x-ray, and on passing, all I said is, oh, that's really interesting. And, you know, he asked, well, why is it interesting? And I talked about these lines that I could see at the lower end of the shin and the lower end of, of the arm. And I said, you know, those are periods of upset. So you know, maybe the child's had, you know, series of, of illnesses or, or whatever it is, but something stopped them growing. And that wasn't something that had been picked up by the pathologist because it's not something necessarily that they would learn. But it allowed the police then to go, well, you know, is there a medical history? So they went back to the GP, apparently, uh, went back to the GP and th there was nothing. And it was at that point when there was the questioning about this periodicity of what was happening, that apparently the father broke down and said that his father used to abuse him. And what he was now concerned was that maybe this was granddad abusing the son, uh, the grandson. And that was why the young boy possibly took his own life. So it, was, it wasn't my case. It just happened to be one of those comments as you were passing an x-ray box that just made a difference. But going back to the, the sexual abuse that you suffered, you said my mental Harris lines will remain with me for the rest of my life. They do. And I think, you know, you, you can't pretend that it's not there. You can't pretend that it didn't happen. It makes you more protective over your own children. It makes you more aware of people. It doesn't go away. And when I started looking um, at this kind of work, it was the head of CID in, in Northern who said to me, don't, don't do this, he said, because the images that you see will stay in your head forever. And he never knew what the images in my head already were. And he was absolutely right. You can't pretend they're not there. All that you can best do is to deal with it as an expert and not allow it to bleed into your own life if you can. But you've been very open about it and you've, you've talked freely about it. How important do you think that is? Um, I'm not sure because when I wrote the first book, somebody said to me, why, why did you write it? And it was because I wanted to leave a narrative behind for, for my own children. My naivety, I don't think anybody else would read it. 
Um, and it was about laying something down for my children so that it would understand me better. Because somebody said, what's the book you'd most like to read? And for me, that would have been the story of my grandmother's life, but she never wrote it. And so for me, it was about leaving something behind as my own legacy for my own family. And we've always been open and honest with all of our girls. No subject has ever been off the table. Nothing's taboo. And, you know, every now and again, they find a little secret they didn't know about us but it's not because we've ever hidden it. And so I've always been very, very open with my family and with my children. And, and why wouldn't you be? There comes a point in life where you think, actually, I can look back on this and say, I wasn't to blame. You know, I was a very young child, but you're made to carry the guilt. And it takes a maturity of time to be able to turn that around in your own head and to let the, the guilt in many ways set free. Tell me about Dr. Fraser. How important was he to you? Oh, he's lovely. So, I mean, I idolised him. He was he was my biology teacher. We all have one, don't we? We all have one teacher oh. that was the person that kind of clicked you into the direction or helped you on your way, yeah? Yep. He sent me off to, we had to do work experience, and he sent me off to the hospital to do work experience in a medical uh, lab. And I came back and I said, that's it. I want to be a medical laboratory technician. And I can remember him looking at me and saying, don't be so bloody stupid, he said, which I was shocked at because he would never swear. He said, you're going to university. And I didn't know I could. None of my family had ever been to university. So I just assumed I would leave school and get a job. And so I lost touch with him, which I, I regretted because he was such an important and influential person. And when I am um, a fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh and in their outreach programme, they wanted me to go and do some talks to schools. And they said, which school would you like to go to? I said, I'd love to go to Inverness Royal Academy because that was my school. Now, unbeknownst to me, they'd invited him out of retirement to sit in the audience. And I hadn't seen him since I'd been in school. And it was just the most marvellous moment. It was almost as if one of the, the youngsters had been primed, but they hadn't. And they asked a question that said, why did you go into the job you're doing? And to be able to look out in the audience and say, because of that man's belief, I think was just incredibly important. Teachers are so important to us at such an impressionable age. And he was my role model. I absolutely adored him and still do. And rightly so. But do you think if he hadn't been around that, that you would have followed the same course or not? Definitely not. I think I would have left school. Um, my, my father was a cabinet maker, upholsterer, French polisher. My mother was a secretary uh, for the government. I think I would have followed my parents' route and I would have found a job. I don't know what the job would have been, but I didn't understand that university was open to me and I didn't understand it was something that I could do. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. 
connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. You had a nickname. Uh, I think it was uh, 2000. I've had many. <laughs> <laughs> you want to be able to share some of them with us. Um, 92 to 2003, Sue. Um, you went and worked for the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and the United Nations. Um, it was Martini Girl, I believe. Is that right? Am I wrong? There were a few of us that were known as Martini Girls, which was, of course, for those who are old enough, anytime, any place, anywhere. But that was literally because you were being sent anytime. At any time of the night, you could be on a plane going anywhere, right? Yeah. And, and it sounds terribly exciting, but it really isn't. You know, be, not knowing where you're going, often until you arrive at the airport, you can see what the tickets say, or, you know, you're heading out of a military base, not knowing whether you're going to a hot climate or a cold climate, not sure how long it's going to be before you're back. Sounds wonderfully exciting, but it bores very, very quickly when you're trying to get on with the rest of your life. But yeah, there were a few of us that were martini girls, but there were many other things as well. Joking aside, I mean, I, I read, you know, you know, Kosovo, um, for those people who don't remember it, genocide um, predominantly by Serbian troops um, against locals, ethnic divisions. Uh, it was horrific. Uh, I fortunately never went there, but I know friends who did and covered it as cameramen, war cameramen and mates who were in the army cover, who went out there. Some of the things that happened there were truly horrific and barbaric beyond. Uh, ethnic cleansing, etc. Um, you talk about, you know, how how on earth do you go to a war zone and start looking at forty bodies that have been machine gunned in two buildings when they've been, the building's been set on fire, the roofs collapsed? How on earth do you go about identifying those bodies and what happened to them? This was one of the first crime scenes that was investigated in Kosovo. And it was important because at that stage, the refugees were not coming back from Albania. And we had bodies everywhere. They were in the gardens, they were in the houses, they were at the side of the road, just everywhere. And as the refugees came back, of course, there was a lot of tidying up. So bodies started to become buried. So this particular site was important because it was one of the first indictment sites. And all of the material was in situ rather than having been cleared by the people who were coming back. So this was a preserved war crime. There was a war, there was evidence of a war crime here, but you had to kind of unravel it. Yes. So, so with a war crime, what you're showing is that this is not um, normal combat that you would expect between forces. This is individuals of a military or a paramilitary basis undertaking this against civilians. And so what we had in this building were 44 men, well, 43 because one escaped, um, from the ages of about 14 into the 80s. So these, these were not individuals who were clearly 
other military forces. These were civilians. And in fact, they were individuals on their way down to Albania on the refugee trail. And they'd been taken off the trail, taken to this outhouse, separated into two rooms. A gunman had stood at the door of each room, sprayed each room with Kalashnikov fire. One man who got into the corner before anybody else, his body was shielded by all of his family, friends, and people he'd met. So he survived. They then threw in straw, they threw in a combustant, which is probably petrol, and they torched the building. So he had to lie there underneath all of these dead bodies that were burning above him because he knew if he came out, he would be shot. And that made him a really important witness against Milosevic. Because if you have an eyewitness who says, this is what happened, and then you have a forensic team who come in who have not been told what have happened, but they are able to devise from the evidence, the scenario that's occurred and the two match, then what you have is very, very strong evidence for the International Criminal Court. But you also have fact, I suppose. You know, you, you have something that can't be disputed by a jury or by, by a barrister, no matter how, how, how adept they are at swaying juries. You know, it's really important for us to be able to say our youngest individual is 14. Our oldest individual is certainly going to be somebody, you know, who's over 16, probably in their 80s. Just those two facts alone tell you that the group of individuals who lost their lives are not going to be military combatants. Just, just in, in layman's terms for me, how do you go about, if the, if the, if the bones were burnt, if they're all lying all over each other, um, how do you start, in, in a situation like that, I, I could probably understand it if you're in sort of like an aircraft hangar and you've got air conditioning and it's not 33 or 35 degree heat, um, flies everywhere, the chance of being possibly shot or, you know, or even possibly taken, all those things going through the back of your head. And there you are on the back of the back of a truck on a piece of wood, trying to work out which bone belongs to which body and how old they are. How do you work that out? How do you do it? It's a human jigsaw. And you have to think of it in that way. So you stand at the door and you get down on your hands and knees and you literally sift through it inch by inch by inch until you come to the first bit of a body. It might be a hand, it might be a foot, it might be a head. And that tells you where the body mass is because don't forget it's, it's buried underneath a lot of roof tiles. And also the dogs have gone in and so it's been a food source. So it's a bit scattered as well. But that will have an effect, as, yeah, because they'll, they'll, I actually sadly witnessed that happening in Haiti after the earthquake, that um, a lot of bodies that were, were crushed by the buildings that flat packed, literally, they contained human beings in them, or bits of human beings were sticking out, and, and the dogs, dogs fed on them. Yeah, it's a food source. And, you know, the, the refugees, when they left, didn't take the dogs with them. So we had packs of wild sort of roaming dogs and, the, you know, they were, they were pretty ferocious. But for them, this was this was a, an easy scene because it was contained within an outhouse. And so they, they will run in, they will grab a bit of body and then they will run away so that they can eat it safely. So we, we'd find where the body masses are. And then it's a case of starting from the top and clearing the rubble because it's a bit like that children's game, you know, where you have all the straws that you place on top of each other and you have to lift one without moving the others. So you find the body that you can lift first or the part of the body. And then you slowly work down through the pile of bodies till you get to the ones that are at the lowest level. But as they're decomposing, what often happens is the bodies will slip or the body parts will slip. So things like hands and feet, if they're not in gloves and shoes, will, will almost sort of 
trickle down into the body mass so that lower down you'll find parts of a body that was sitting at the top. That gravity? Is it gravity? Is yeah. it, or is it just... Because as it decomposes, it will just drop down into the spaces. So the flesh and the, and the ligature that was holding it together is no longer there. So the weight of the and bone... And the dogs are shaking it, don't forget. Dogs yeah, are shaking it. So it all just trickles down. Do you ever lose your faith in human beings when you witness atrocities like that? No, because what I've what I found in every single scenario I've been in, if you look for it, there is much more kindness than there is hostility. And we spend a lot of our life paying more attention than we should to the negative things. So, you know, you might be standing by the side of a grave with a woman who has lost her husband, her children, her home. She may have been raped. Just, you know, scenarios that you almost can't imagine. And you are there with the UN. Your job is to exhume the bodies of her family. And she's grateful to you. She has nothing, but she will still come out with a cup of coffee. And that cup of coffee is worth its weight in gold because it's her humanity recognizing that what we're there to do is to try to help to make sure that this doesn't go unrecorded or unnoticed. And you can find that real sparks of human humanity where you look for it. And in many ways, you know, that really does just blind out the darkness of so much of the negativity that you're exposed to. That human spirit is quite overwhelming, having been to a few places myself. But when I was in, in Afghanistan, sometimes the locals, the kindness, the generosity, even in extreme situations where people were facing death on a daily basis, the kindness was just overwhelming. It is. And I think that's the real strength. And, and we miss that if we don't look for it. I think I was lucky when I came back from Kosovo in particular that I learnt from there what was important. I have never cared whether my car gets scratched. I don't care if the Hoover doesn't go around the house. I really don't. But I cared every single night about hugging my children before they went to sleep. And, and it helped me, I think, to readjust and to decide what was important and what wasn't. And there's so much of our modern life that is just not important. Some things matter and some things don't. Um, on that basis though, getting through it, again, I know you, you use that I'm a scientist and I, I shouldn't take sides. Again, I find it hard not to when confronted with, with war crimes of that nature. But what about, what about having a, um, bit of a sense of humour. Does that help? It certainly helped me in certain places. Oh, the, the, some of the funniest places I've been in the world are mortuaries. And you feel as if it's wrong to be funny. But it is. I mean, so let me take you to Kosovo. So what we have, and, and the, the humour is never directed at the bodies. It's never directed at the families of the situation. It's usually to ourselves. So when I was in that, that scene in Kosovo, um, we were out there with SO13, who were the anti-terrorist branch. Because at the time, you know, Northern Ireland was quiet and, and all of the Al-Qaeda and other situations hadn't happened. So we had, you know, the best of the best out with us. And one of our bomb disposal chaps had said, look, you know, if you find anything that you, you're worried about, just let us know. And I said, well, I don't even know what to be worried about. I've never seen an explosive device in my life. He said, it doesn't matter. If you're worried, just let me know. And I was down on my hands and knees and I was, I was sifting through the remains and I saw a real glint of, of metal. And I thought, you know, I, I don't know what that is. So I'm going to call it. So I stood up and I called it. And of course, they kitted out in the full bomb disposal stuff. We were standing around for about an hour while they went down. They came back up from the site, took off all their kit. And, he, and you know where there's a comfortable distance between people? 
Well, he came closer than the comfortable distance. So he's really <laughs> invading my space. And he, he said to me, you know, little lady, you'll never know just how lucky you are to be alive. And of course, this is me thinking, oh my goodness me, improvised explosive device. And what he produced was a soup spoon. And that was the bit of metal that I'd seen. So of course, I was going to be the butt of everybody's joke from that point on. Every time I pulled down the covers on my bed, there were 12 teaspoons or soup yeah. spoons. And yeah. Every time yeah. a bowl of soup came, it was a row of spoons around it. I became the cutlery queen of Kosovo. But that's when you know you're accepted as part of the team. And those, those moments uh, release the tension, release the anxiety. Yeah. These are people that you might not normally choose to spend time with, but you're in an environment that is really stressful and you're doing a really difficult job that many people wouldn't want to do. So you become reliant on each other. When somebody has a wobble, the others are there to support them. And, and you become the sort of big brother goes Balkan um, team that, that will sort of work together and fit together. And if you can make fun of each other, but do it in a way that, are, that is kind, then you know you've got a good team and you need that. You talk about the team quite a lot. And, and from, from the little bit that I do, I know how important that is. It's a team effort. But you turned down an OBE three times because you know, you believe it should be for the team and not for you? Well, you've got to understand my father. Uh, so my father says, and always said, that OBE stands for other buggers' efforts. And he's absolutely <laughs> right. Is that you never achieve anything on your own. Other people absolutely. support you to get there. Absolutely. And I, I felt really uncomfortable. And I said, you know, I, I didn't deserve it. I did my job. And it wasn't any sort of false modesty. I genuinely didn't. And they came back to me and said, no, we, we really want you to, to, to take an OBE. And I turned it down again. And then they came back and they said, look, we're, we're giving an OBE to those who were leading specific disciplines in the team. And if you don't, yours will be the only discipline that wasn't recognized. And so I thought, well, OK, under those circumstances, I can do it. And then they told me you can only take three people with you. Now, I have three children and a husband. Who, who was I going to not take? So I turned it down then for the third time because my husband and my family are more important to me than, than an OBE. So they came back to me and said, yeah, for goodness sake, okay, you don't have to come to Buckingham Palace. You don't have to come to Holyrood. This can be done in your local town hall with the Lord Lieutenant of the County. Will you please take it now? And that's what we did. So we had a great party with everybody there and that, that was right. But when it came to the DBE, so when, when I was made a Dane, our middle daughter said, mum, I'm never gonna get inside Buckingham Palace, so you're taking this one. And so that's <laughs> what I did, so that they could get their noses inside Buckingham Palace. <laughs> but it's not what you're about, is it? See, what, 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 is it about the justice? Is it about redefining the science of what you do? What is it, what drives you? Um, more than anything, I mean, the justice is important and the science is important, but most of the time what our job does is it helps to bring closure. It's about people and it's about community. So if you're somebody who has a family member who's missing <clears throat> and, you know, when you talk to them, they talk about their life going into a stutter that says, you know, I don't know where my sister is. I don't know what's happened to her. There's all sorts of imaginings. What our job does is that when that body is found and we can confirm the identity, 
we can then go to that family with bad news. It's always bad news, but I think it's kind news that says, this is the truth. This is what's happened. I'm sorry, it is your sister, it is your brother. And what it does is it takes away false hope. And I think that's a really cruel thing, false hope, when there was no real basis for it. And so what we tell is hard, but there's an honesty and a truth in it. And it allows that family to put that body in the ground, to grieve over it, and hopefully to start to move forward. It's that closure, and it's about that ability to translate your science and what you do into something that really matters. And to me, what really matters more than anything is family. So therefore, it matters in my mind to other people as well. That's the real thing that makes me want to do it. You seem so at reason with yourself. You seem, I think that the scientist in you, you are a natural scientist. Um, and you, you, you seem to be able to control motion very, very well. But um, is there one thing uh, in your life um, that has been the toughest that you, that you feel that you overcame and how did you overcome it? So my, when I was very young, the most important person in my life was my grandmother, my father's mother. I just absolutely adored her. And she always said to me, you need to be there for your father. And I never quite understood what she meant by that. And my father was the last of his generation to die. And I adored my father, absolutely adored him. And he, for the final stages of his life, suffered the most awful Alzheimer's and dementia. And I watched my father lose his ability to walk. I lost his ability to hear his stories, for him to tell you anything. And, and I watched him slowly waste away. And we knew it was, it was getting close to his time. And I'd been up to the hospital and spent time with him that particular day because we moved him down to our hometown so that I could see him every single day. And I'd said to him, you know, right, Dad, I'm going home now. I'm going to and I'll be back in the morning. And this was a man who had been totally non-communicative for a year and locked inside his Alzheimer's. And nobody will, will tell me otherwise. There was a fear came across his face and his eyes. And I remember my grandmother saying, you need to be there for your father. And my oldest daughter saw it as well. And she said, mom, you're not going anywhere tonight. And my father was able to communicate to me that he was going to die that night. And I was never in any doubt. So I went home and had a shower and came back and sat with him all the way through. And in those small, small, small hours of the morning and why it is, you know, three to four in the morning, I'll never know sitting by my father's bed. He wasn't communicative. I held his hand. His muscles never flinched, whether he was aware I was there or not. We talked and we sang and we laughed and we joked and we did all sorts of things. My daughter and I at his death, at his bedside. And then I waited with him until he took his last breath. And I think I would have thought prior to that, that maybe would have been something that was just a little bit too much for me to do because he was so important to me. But I, you know, to me, that was the most precious moment other than the birth of my children, the most precious moment of my life is for a daughter to be there right to the last moment when their father clearly was alarmed, maybe scared about being on his own. He didn't want to be. And to, for him to be able to convey that to me and for me to be able to there with him when he finally took his last breath, I thought was just, it was hard, but it was the most important thing I've ever done. Do you ever consider your own mortality? Oh yeah, because it's a certainty. It's not a probability. 
It's the one thing that is absolutely going to happen. What we don't know is when, and often we don't know how, but we have an expectation, we have a life expectancy. And you know, life expectancy for women in the UK is about 83, men it's about 79. So we expect to live to that age. Of course, we don't always. But my, my sort of goal was to live long enough to allow my children to become adults. So uh, that, you know, I've achieved that. Anything beyond there is a bit of a bonus. So I, I would be a hypocrite if I didn't say I want to be dissected. So I do. So I, I have bequeathed my body to Dundee because I, I want to be at Dundee. And I, when I die, whenever it is, you know, if it's next week, heaven forbid, or if it's in 20 years time, I would like to be dissected in the dissecting room in Dundee. I want it to be, I want to be dissected by scientists rather than medics or dentists, because I don't think they learn enough anatomy. So I'd rather it was somebody who really ripped this body into the tiniest little pieces to learn everything they can from it. And then when they're finished, what I want them to do is they can take away all the fat and the muscle and the skin and everything else, and they can cremate that, and that will disappear into the ether. And, you know, there's, there's no ash left from soft tissue. But I want them to collect my bones together. And then you're going to have to boil them down to get rid of the fat and to get all the bits of, of tendon and things off. And I want them to articulate me as a skeleton so that I can continue to teach for the rest of my death. And it's a real value then to the body and you know the, the ability and the thought that you carry on teaching long after you've died seems fit and I think you know there's, there's nothing probably more apt than for a forensic anthropologist when she grows up to want to be an articulated skeleton it kind of fits doesn't it it may not have happened if you become a French polisher or a secretary that's <laughs> well I could have been but this way I want to be an articulated skeleton when I grow up I, I'm absolutely gobsmacked and blown away by your knowledge, your ability to, to, to explain what you do when it is so complex and to, to make the likes of my good self understand some of the, the incredible things that you've, you've achieved in your life so far. You're an amazing lady. Thank you for your time. You're very kind. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Kempcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Kemp and on Instagram at Ross Kemp TV. This has been a Freshwater and the Chancer Collective production. Thanks to the team and one fine play. And until the next episode, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.